We're in our seventh week in our series in James, and we're going to read together. So going from chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. James writes, and he says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that a jealousy longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the promise that as we humble ourselves before you, you'll lift us up. And I pray you'd help us humble our hearts now, God. We want to hear from you tonight. We want to hear you speak. We want to know your voice. Thank you for the way that you're already working in this service tonight. And God, we ask for more. Amen. Amen. Well, it's November the 17th. And I can now say with some certainty that Christmas is coming. Come on. And some of you are like, yes, Tim, I know. I've been thinking about this since October the 1st. You know, some, some of you, there are t- you know, different kinds of people. Some of you are like, look, in October, it's not too soon to be listening to Christmas music and watching Christmas films. I'm not one of those people. Um, I think there should be laws around this sort of stuff. Legally, Christmas celebrations should happen on December 1st. Now, as it comes to Christmas, what are you hoping for? What's on the Christmas list? What's, what are you wanting? What do you want to happen? Maybe for some of us, it's all about family and friends. Actually, what we're really after, you know, if you had a Christmas list, it's just I want to see the people closest to me. Maybe for some of us, and this is quite a high priority, it's just all about the food. You know, people are great. Family, yeah, food. Uh, For some of us, it's just some time off. Um, For some of us, it is just, you know, gifts or cash. Cash is great, isn't it? Um, If anyone's sort of taking notes, I'd love a car. Um, A VW Golf, ideally from 2008 or later, TSI model, blue. That'd be excellent. Just saying. Um, well, James says, as we think about what we want, he's not talking about Christmas, surprisingly. When he says, what you want, what you're after, what you desire, plays such an important role in the direction of your life. And he asks us, are we desiring, are we wanting the things of God or the things of the world? And he talks about relating to these things, to God and to the world. He uses the phrase of friendship. And he says, what you want says who you are friends with. And he asks us a stark question. Are we friends with the world or are we friends with God? Are we friends with the world or are we friends with God? Because we can't be both. Read with me from verse four. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Here's the problem. Here's what James sets up. He says, you can't be friends with both the world and with God, because to choose one is to reject the other. Now, when James says the world, he doesn't necessarily mean individual human cultures like our 21st century Western liberal culture. He kind of means all of human desire and values and culture apart from God. He's sort of talking about the natural and therefore sinful human nature. What does it mean to be friends with the world? Well, it's all about our desires. It's all about what we want and what our desires lead us to. And frankly, it's when our desires lead us to sin. Verse 1. Again, you can read with me. He says, fights and quarrels come from your desires that battle within you. So our internal wants lead to external actions. What happens amongst us, because he's talking to Christians, comes from within us. And he goes on, verse 2, he says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. So you want what others have, and then you take matters into your own hands when you can't get it. And this shows us that being a friend of the world is when our selfish desires lead us to act in a certain way. And that kind of way is no different to how it would be if we weren't a Christian. When our desires of our hearts and the culture of our lives and our values look no different. It basically, does Jesus, I mean, did you think this is the point of James's letter? Is following Christ making any difference to your life? Because being a friend with the world is when what you're after doesn't look any different to what it would look like if you weren't following him. Now, I should say, as I talk about the world, um, maybe you're listening here today and you're a guest or you are not yet, you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian and you're thinking, maybe firstly, gosh, this is pretty full on, you know, adultery. And then, or maybe you're thinking, how arrogant is this? You know, here's a Christian saying, the world is so sinful. That's not what I'm saying. Let me clarify. Let me show us what James is saying. He's not saying that Christians are better than anyone else or should look down on anyone else. It's basically that they should practice what they preach. Christians claim to follow a loving God who calls us to selflessly love others. And yet our actions show that sometimes we're just out to get as much as we can for ourselves. Our faith and our actions must work together. This is what he spoke about in chapter 2. He writes about Abraham and he says that he was called a friend of God because his faith that justified him led him to obey God. And Christians, we are to do, HTC, we are to do the same. Now, just to think about this series and where we've gone so far, we've thought about what happens when the internal change that the gospel brings, that is a new life, being born again, how should that change how we relate to other people in our conversation, how we relate to other people in our care for others, particularly of the poor. And this week, if you like, it's culture. How do we relate to the world around us? And James is basically saying, you can't be friends with the world and friends with God. You can't be a friend of culture and God. What he's really calling people out is selfish desire. I wonder if you noted that. Read with me in verse 3. He says, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You ask with wrong motives. So he's talking about prayer to God and he's saying when you ask, the, the motives of your heart aren't right and it's all about what you can get. And it sounds like it's all about money, isn't it? And his point is that there's a trajectory to this kind of life looking just to be pleased, looking to please yourself. 
and it leads us fundamentally away from God and to sin. This is what he wrote about in chapter 1. This is the general principle, he says. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So it's not that all our pleasures are, all our desire for pleasure is necessarily bad. It's that if we follow that course, if we follow that trajectory, it inevitably leads us away from God, even to death, is James's word. Now, that isn't necessarily what we think, is it? As we think about, say, our earthly friendships. Don't we generally think that our lives are enriched by being friends with multiple people? I have a fairly significant birthday coming up next month. And I won't say what it is, except to say that it begins with T and ends with Hurty. And um, one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, who am I going to invite? I'm going to have a party and... And I'm thinking, wow, I've got this great chance to invite different people from different parts of my life and friends from when I was at school and loads of stuff. And I think, as I've thought about that, I've thought how lucky I am, how blessed by God I am to have all these people. And they're different and they've brought different things into my life. They have enriched my life. And I wonder if we think the same kind of thing about culture, about the world around us and God. And we basically think our lives are enriched if we get a bit of God and a bit of the world. God's word says no. Friendship with the world, that is following our selfish desires, fundamentally changes our relationship to other people and to God. It doesn't enrich. Changes our relationship to other people and to God. Let's first consider what it does to other people. Well, James says selfish desires cause conflict. Verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Our default response to this might be other people. But he says, he, he points to another course with one of his rhetorical questions, and he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So his conflict comes from what happens within you. And what happens when we don't get what we want? Verse 2, he says, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now we might think this talk of quarreling and fighting and even killing, well that's a bit extreme, that doesn't really reflect my life. And maybe we can say that James is speaking in hyperbole to make a point. But his general idea is that selfish desires do not lead to good things. You can just flick your eyes back up the page into chapter 3 to go to verse 16. And he's speaking more generally, but he's following along the train of thought as we go into chapter 4. And he says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So he's making a point and he's naming killing and quarreling and fighting. But he's saying where you have envy and where you have selfish desire, there you find every kind of sin. I mean, I think it's so prevalent. Let's just take the idea of selfish ambition. Just think about selfish ambition, what that can lead us to do. Let's think about it in the kind of places we might work. I mean, have you seen people's ambition change the way they relate to other people? be so common. You know, we can want to use other people as stepping stones for our own success. You know, we might want to steal credit for somebody else's work. Or we might want to withhold information to someone who's kind of a rival so that we might get the promotion or the glory for something. We might shift the blame to someone else who isn't present to defend themselves. You know, when we take advantage of people in difficult situations just to benefit ourselves, that's selfish ambition outworking itself. 
and it's so common. And when there is that kind of practice, when there is that kind of, excuse me, when there's that kind of ambition in our hearts, which is for our glory and us being lifted up, it leads us to sin and even to crush others. And that kind of behavior, says James, is friendship with the world. So friendship with the world changes our relationships to other people, but then also it changes our relationship to God. Because selfish desires change how we pray. Verse 2 again. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. So when we're out to get what we can for ourselves, we become self-sufficient. We don't ask God because we don't think we need him. In fact, there's such pride in that attitude. So either we don't pray, or as James goes on, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Now, this doesn't mean that all unanswered prayer is the result of our motives. Rather, that friendship with the world changes our desires in such a way that it totally shifts how we pray. So we only pray when we want to get something for us or when the thing that we most value that isn't God is in danger. And particularly, there's something about money. He says, you ask us on motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And a good diagnostic question for us to ask maybe is, if God were to answer all our prayers today, who would benefit? Would it just be us? Would anyone else benefit? Following our selfish desire, that is being a friend of the world, fundamentally changes our relationship to other people and it changes our relationship to God. And effectively, it makes an enemy of other people and it makes an enemy of God, says James. Now, we might know ask, we want to clarify, how can someone be an enemy of God if God loves everybody? Well, they're not mutually exclusive. Do you remember Jesus said we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Well, that is God's attitude to people who set themselves against him. He's perfectly able to love those who have decided to go against his will. Now, it is important that we consider God's reaction to this, to this idea of friendship with the world. Because James puts it in such strong terms. He says this in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? James says choosing to follow the world's way is not just like letting a friend down, you know, bailing on someone last minute or disappointing someone. It's spiritual adultery. It's like cheating on God. And God is portrayed as like a marriage partner who jealously longs for us. James says he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Now, I thought about how best to communicate this idea of spiritual adultery. And, um, you know, you could portray it uh, in meme form. It's going to come up. But I didn't think this was very helpful. God is problematically portrayed as a woman there. So anyway, what I was thinking about was, you can take it down now. Uh, what I was thinking about was, is our sort of adultery in the Lord, is our cheating in the Lord a bit like building flat pack furniture without the instructions? And I know what you're thinking, yes, that's an obvious link. Spiritual adultery, Ikea, sure. 
And it might not surprise you that I thought of this when I was procrastinating for writing this sermon by trying to put up a bookcase. Now, what I did was I took one look at the bookcase. It's very simple to build, I thought. I thought, I don't need those instructions. There's about six pieces here, 20 nails. I've got this. And let me tell you, and I don't want to overstate this, but I think I set some kind of world record for how quickly I got it up. You know, if IKEA had leaderboards, Tim Jones, maybe the Rev, is at the top. Now, what happened when I turned it round? Half of it was back to front. You know, when you've got like the balsa wood that's facing one way and then the white, the paint, you know, that happened. And I thought, oh, maybe I could talk about that and say, actually, when we reject God, it's like rejecting his wisdom for our lives. Yeah, we've basically, we're saying, God, we want to go our own way. We're rejecting what you said for us to do and therefore it all goes wrong. But actually, that isn't the way. Because rejecting God, this kind of spiritual adultery, following the world and therefore becoming an enemy of God, is not just rejecting God's wisdom, as in rejecting what God has said to us, although it is. It's rejecting God himself. It's rejecting God himself. So you know what the best analogy for spiritual adultery is? Adultery. Unfaithfulness in a covenant relationship. Now, this is very biblical imagery. The idea of the unity between Christ and the church is portrayed in Scripture like a marriage. But in this case, when we choose to go our own way and we basically say, I want a bit of God and a bit of the world, we become like an unfaithful partner in the marriage. This is imagery God has used before. This is a way of God has communicated to his people before. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord would speak to his people, the Israelites. In particular, he would speak to the prophet Hosea. And he said, tell my people, in committing idolatry, they are like unfaithful to me. They are committing adultery. God is jealous for us. God is jealous for us. But so often we reject him in the things we say and the things we want. And we choose to be friends with the world. But here's the reason why this is so devastating. Why this could speak potentially to so many of us. James isn't speaking just to those who have totally rejected God. He's speaking to Christians who think it's okay to follow God and the world. And they don't even realize that following their selfish desires that leads to sin means rejecting God. This, says James, is double-mindedness. This, says James, is double-mindedness being fundamentally divided. This is the image we've already used in the sermon series. Do you remember of the escalators? One going up and one going down. What happens when you try to straddle escalators with one foot going down and one foot going up? You get fundamentally pulled in different directions. That's what this is. He's speaking to people and he's saying, you don't even know what you're doing. You're following these desires and it's leading to quarreling and fighting. You're following these desires and it's making an enemy of God and it's making an enemy of other people. And you think it's okay to still call yourselves Christians. Now we should think about why adultery is such an appropriate uh, metaphor or such an appropriate uh, thing for him to say. It's because when you commit adultery in marriage, you can still legally and before God be married. So your status hasn't changed, but you can just be cheating on someone with someone else and we can be a bit like that see when we become a Christian God does something amazing he brings internal change as that slide said earlier he makes us born again he makes us his he takes us from death to life he doesn't just 
bring good, good deeds onto our life. He doesn't tack things on. He makes us totally new from the inside out. Nothing can change that. Nothing can separate us in all creation from the love of God. And yet, despite the fact that we've been born again, despite the fact that we get to be his, we are made as his, despite the fact we get made alive, we can still choose to go our own way. And we can still choose to be unfaithful to God, even though he is so loving to us. We can so often be double-minded on this. We don't even realize what we're doing. We fail to take our sin seriously. You know, sometimes we can see that our desires and our actions hurt other people, but we fail to see how our desires and our actions might even hurt or reject God. God says to us, yes, I love you. I gave my son for you. But how often you grieve my heart. Now, it's worth us thinking through, as you hear this and as we think and as we read this, it's worth thinking through just how influenced we are by the culture we live in and just how much our own values, the values of our lives, are so set by the world around us in a way that we don't even realize. Because our culture, the world we live in, disciples us, to use the Christian term. But effectively, we take on values and we take on ideas and we take on morality from the world around us and we don't even realize it's happening. So we can be following the way of the world and think we're doing the right thing because that's what we understand as the right thing. Mark Sayers, he's a pastor in Australia and quite an astute um, cultural commentator, says this. He's thinking about people in the West and he's trying to name a few things that they go after. And he says, the average person in the West carries around in their head a set of assumptions that are culturally imbibed. Assumptions such as the idea that spirituality is preferable to organized religion, that love is a feeling, not a discipline, that if something is mundane, it must be boring, that individual freedom trumps the collective, that travel broadens the mind, or that we can do what we like as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And particularly on that last point, I think that is so accurate. Morality has been reduced to whether it hurts someone with no sense of whether actually it hurts us or God. Now, I'm not suggesting here that we all need to become monks. Suddenly we all need to shut ourselves away from the world and live in a holy huddle. Absolutely not. But we must learn to recognize in ourselves and ask God, the Holy Spirit, to show you, God, where are my desires and where are the things I value and where are the things that my life is pointed towards? Where is that of the world and fundamentally not glorifying to you? So we must ask God to show us where our life has just been discipled by the world around us. And then we must be in the world to love everyone that God has put us with. When you go to work tomorrow, you go back to your flat tonight or your parents, or whoever it is, God has put us with those people to love them into the kingdom of God, not to retreat. But he's asking us, will you live out in your life what you've said before me? You said you'll commit your life to me. Will you live it out? Will you be distinct? Will you pursue me? Will you not be double-minded? We must be single-minded. We must be single-minded before the Lord. We must choose to pursue him and his ways. James says this in verse 7. Submit yourselves then 
to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. There's no less than 10 commandments if you were to read that verse through. And they're all talking about this idea. How do we become single-minded before the Lord? How do we set aside double-mindedness? How do we set aside friendship with the world? We come to God in humility. It's all about humility. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. We need to submit to his commands. We need to resist temptation. We need to repent of our sin and we need to take it seriously. And over and over and over and over again, we need to come back to the Lord and say, I need you and I need your grace and I need your mercy and I need your forgiveness. Being a Christian, becoming a Christian isn't just, or living it out, it's not just a one-time prayer and then you're set. You don't just say once in your life, okay, God, I really need you and I need your help and I, I see now that I'm sinful and I need your grace. We need to do that again and again and again and again. And that takes such humility because what it does is it takes you off the pedestal of your life and puts God back in that place. Because again, you're saying, God, I'm not perfect and I can't save myself. I couldn't save myself to begin with, so I don't know why I'm trying to do that now. It's laying down our pride before the Lord. And God promises to do something amazing. Humble yourselves before the Lord, says James, and he'll lift you up. See, as we pursue selfish desires, what are we pursuing? We're pursuing our own glorification. We're pursuing being lifted up in our lives, as in we're pursuing good things for us. We want status. We want recognition. We want money. We want a relationship. We want a house, whatever it is. And so often we follow our selfish desires to try and get those things when we don't realize that actually what we need to do is come before the Lord and say, I cannot do this myself and I need your help. I want to humble myself before you. At which point the Lord says, ah, and now I will lift you up. We spend our time trying to lift ourselves up when actually what we need to do is come before God and say, I can't do it. I need your help. Now, I'm not suggesting that that means that God's going to answer our prayers and we're all going to become millionaires and we're all going to be exalted in the world's eyes and we're all going to become famous and rich. But rather, all the things that we're actually longing for as we pursue selfish desires are what the Lord is going to bring into our life. When we're single-minded, when we come to God in humility, God does some amazing things. You can go through the verses and you can pick out what God does. In verse 3, he says, you don't, ask, you don't get because you don't ask with the right motives. But there is a kind of prayer that, God leads, that leads to God answering our prayer and God providing. God provides in our lives. Living out in relationship is, with him is finding that he's so faithful and he provides. For all our needs. Do you remember Jesus, he was speaking and he said, touch of everything Jesus said seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all these things will be added unto you and he said don't worry about what you'll eat about what you'll wear but he said seek God and God will provide what did he teach us to pray give us today our daily bread amazingly God actually provides for us he is faithful to us he pours out his favor and provision in our lives not necessarily in millions of pounds but in the things we need Ask, there's a kind of asking that leads to receiving. And when we humble ourselves before God, what we get is friendship with the Lord. 
We get friendship with the Lord. There's a line I love in um, Bruce Almighty, and Bruce meets God, and they're having a discussion, he's worried about it, and at one point, Bruce says to him, come, take a closer walk. And then they go off and walk, and that's one of my mum's favourite lines in that film. And that's what the Lord says to us. He says, walk and talk with me. Take a closer walk with me. Live your life in relationship with me. I will be your friend. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I've called you friends. Instead, says Jesus, I call you friends. I call you those I know, those I love. That's what we get when we humble ourselves before the Lord. We get friendship with him. What else do we get when we humble ourselves? We get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. He says, God has caused his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. We get the Holy Spirit for the empowering of our daily life. We get the Holy Spirit that communicates from our spirit to God and confirms to us that we're his sons and daughters. And then we get empowered to live out. We get the, the wisdom of the Lord. We get to know his solutions and we get to know his ways. We get the spirit of the living God. We, the creator of all the heavens and all the universe and everything comes to live, he takes up residence in us by his Holy Spirit when we humble ourselves. And we get to find out the purpose of why we are made and what we are called for. We get friendship with God. We get prayers that are answered. We get the Holy Spirit and we receive the grace of the Lord. We've sung it tonight. We've sung about your love never giving up, never failing, never running out on me. Verse six, I love. He's just condemned the people. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world means being an enemy of God in verse 4? God's jealous for the spirit he's caused to live in us. And even though we are going our own way, what does he say in verse 6? But he gives us more grace. God's grace is so sufficient for us. And every time we come to him, he says, I have grace enough for you. You can come to him with any sin in your life. You can come to him for any brokenness in your life. No matter how far you run away from the Lord, every time you come back to him, he says, I have enough grace for you. I've paid the price for you. And God's grace isn't cheap because it costs God everything. But when we come to him again and again and again, he gives us more grace. More than we deserve. More than we'll ever need in a sense because it's so limitless. We get the grace of God. And we need it because we're unfaithful. We can so easily fall into double-mindedness. And we can so easily, even though we are loved by God, though we're chosen by him, though we're called by him, made anew, we can so easily live our lives as if none of that were true. And if we haven't had this wonderful revelation of Jesus Christ, we can be unfaithful in the things we want, in the things we say, in the things we do. But God is never unfaithful to us. He is always faithful. He's always faithful. And even though we might break his heart in our sin, the Lord says, I was willing to be broken for you upon a cross. I was willing for my body to be broken for you. To pay the price for your life and for your sin. God gives us more grace. We get friendship with God. We get the Holy Spirit. We get grace. We get prayers answered. And when we humble ourselves... Verse 8, I love this. As we come near to God, he comes near to us.
Come near to God, says James, with full assurance, and he will come near to you. You take one step towards the Lord, and he takes one step right back. Think of the image of the prodigal son. The son takes one step towards the father, and the father runs to meet him. As we draw near to God in the humility that says, I can't possibly save myself, and I need your forgiveness and mercy and grace, God promises to draw near to us. And some of you need to hear this today because God feels far. God does not feel near to you. And though you know maybe in a head knowledge the truth of everything he's done in your life, you don't know a heart relationship with him. You don't know his presence. You don't know what it is to walk and talk with your heavenly father, to take a closer walk. We need to humble ourselves before God again. We need to say, God, I'm so sorry but I thank you for Jesus Christ. I want to choose to come near to you again today. And God promises that as we come near to him, he will come near to us. Let's pray. Oh God, your love for us is amazing. We cannot thank you enough for dying for us. And we cannot thank you enough for grace. And I just pray, Lord, from what I've spoken tonight, I just pray if there's anything in us that says, here's the things I need to do and here's what I need to achieve and here's how I need to please God, Lord, I pray that that would fall away and we would see that it's all about what you have done for us. That's how we get made right with you. But Lord, I pray you would help us come before you in humility and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I want to put you on the throne of my life. I want you to be number one in my heart. I don't want to be double-minded anymore. God, we even need your grace to make that kind of prayer. So Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Spirit, that where two or three are gathered, there you are. Thank you for your presence here, but I just ask for more now. Ask for a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit right now, Lord, as we seek you in humility. And I pray for those of us who feel so far from you, God, would know you so close. That those of us who feel dry, God, would know you're refreshing. Lord, that those of us who know that we've been walking away, God, I pray that we would know with clarity, Holy Spirit, where you're convicting us. But Lord, I pray against guilt, but I do pray, God, that we'd be able to shape our lives around you and resolve again to live for you and to walk out in this day by day. Lord, I pray that you would be Lord of our lives. Amen.